Last week we were <clears throat> uh, talking about the uh, uh, the legacy of World War One, so to speak, some of the uh, sort of intellectual and military and political and economic components of World War One that we brought up in in uh, uh, relation to the fact that the 100th anniversary of uh, the assassination of the Archduke. Franz Ferdinand of Austria. He was the crown prince, by the way. He was not the so-called emperor of, our, of Austria at the time. He was the next in line, sort of like Charles I. Assassinated, by the way, in a kind of an interesting event in Sarajevo in which he had gone down there and his, uh, his driver, as I recall, took the wrong turn. Correct. They went into kind of a dead-end Point and the had Duke to turn around and come back. Had to turn around and come back, and he insisted on going the way that had been prescribed by the uh, plan. So it's uh, kind of ironic that he, if if they had just abandoned what they abandoned ship at the time, he might he might have survived. But anyway, yeah, the the route of the motorcade was known, although it was a horse drawn carriage, uh, and uh, Princeps was the guy's name. Uh, a Bosnian uh, who was in Serbian. Yeah, Serbian, Serbian nationalist. nationalist yeah. uh, who shot him. He was a member of uh, a, what was called at the time a terror organization, the Black Hand. Yeah. 
And uh, and there had been a series of Balkan wars, by the way, that preceded um, World War One, the so-called Great War. You know, these these events were were dating back to like 1911 and 1912, sort of disputes involving Bulgaria and parts of Yugoslavia and and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a crumbling entity to say the least. Uh, it had frequently uh, it was always it was a remnant of the Holy Roman Empire. It had uh, a lot of very odd territories in its so-called Scherzenady and and it just uh, really was almost a thing of the past anyway. It really was an artifact of the pre-nationalism era, uh, as you say, a throwback to the sort of kingdoms of Central Europe. Uh, and the idea of nationalism had grown and spread so uh, intensively that each linguistic group wanted its own nation. Yeah. And since the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a hyphenated empire, uh, contained so many peoples within it, it was uh, ripe for shattering. Um, and, of course, the, the big complicating factor, and oh, oh, the Archduke is assassinated. Uh, why should that uh, bring all of Europe crashing to its knees? It was the so-called entangling alliances, and as the... Uh, the, the, the Treaty of, Ver, of Vienna, Metternich. Right, Metternich, and, Henry of course, Kissinger's hero. Yeah, yeah, this was Henry Kissinger's Ph.D. Uh, subject. He was a great admirer of this... Real politic, shall we say, and alliances and uh, spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. uh, these ideas, by the way, were very commonly held throughout the world. Uh, it's it's fascinating to discover that after World War One, the British and um, Japanese actually grabbed some of Germany's possessions in the Pacific, <laughs> like the Marshall Islands and stuff. Right. Very strange stuff. But these were regarded by the Japanese as uh, within their sphere of influence. And the sphere of influence, the phrase, was was certainly an idea that Winston Churchill and Stalin uh, believed in wholeheartedly when they uh, had a separate meeting in October of 1944, several months before Yalta, in which they agreed to spheres of influence in Eastern Europe. This is the famous dividing up Eastern Europe on the back of a napkin because uh, Churchill became alarmed at the rapidity at which some of the Eastern European states had fallen to the Red Army uh, in the late summer and early fall of 1944. So he decided, well, Eden has been my man in the past to go to Moscow, but I'm going there myself right now. <laughs> so he rapidly went to, to uh, Moscow and met Stalin directly, and they literally divided up Eastern Europe on the back of uh, a napkin. And uh, the main goal, by the way, that Churchill extracted from Stalin was to, to keep him out of Greece. Uh, Churchill and the British's perspective about their spheres of influence were they were predominantly concerned with the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. And, of course, India was their prized possession. Uh, Churchill uh, agreed for, that Stalin would stay out of Greece. And uh, even when the Civil War started in Greece following World War II, Stalin actually kept his word. He did stay out of Greece, but he uh, pretty much wanted uh, Germ uh, the Great Britain to stay out of Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, 
and Poland. Right. And then, of course, America was able to refer to this as a strategy of containment, whereas Stalin could talk about the very same thing and refer to it as uh, his buffer zone. Because it was interesting, the Truman document, uh, doctrine uttered in 1947 was predominantly, it was uh, uttered on uh, the 12th of uh, March 1947, was predominantly a proclamation in which the United States came to the aid of Greece and Turkey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, fearful of uh, what the Soviets would, would possibly be doing next. But uh, it's quite clear from the historical record that Stalin did not support the communist uh, forces uh, to any real extent in Greece in the Civil War that followed World War II. Ah, uh, but we digress, and yet there's an interesting connection between all of the the problems of World War II and the problems of World War I. Well, indeed, they, uh, they go hand in glove, uh, you could easily say. Um, the... Uh, tendency uh, for the Russians to see themselves as the protectors of the Slavs uh, were, were largely uh, the reasons why they were so willing under the Tsar to step up and say, well, we're going to get involved. If there's going to be a war declared against Austria-Hungaria, we're going to come in uh, to protect the Slavs of Eastern Europe, uh -huh. uh, Serbs, Croats, uh, etc., and uh, the great satire magazine, uh, The Onion, came out some years back with a book called Our Dumb Century. Really, it's a comedy classic. But uh, as is often the case, satire can sometimes more succinctly and directly point out history's greatest foibles in, in a joke form, uh, such as this classic headline, War Declared by All. Austria declares war on Serbia, declares war on Germany, declares war on France, declares war on Turkey, declares war on Russia, declares war on Bulgaria, declares war on Britain. Ottoman Empire almost declares war on itself. <laughs> Nations struggle to remember allies. Uh, entangling alliances sucked into war, even though well, this might not be a good, but we've already signed the agreement. We're committed. Yes, and indeed it was Napoleon who once famously quipped, I'm always wary of qu quoting Napoleon, but <laughs> <laughs> he's a funny little man. <laughs> but uh, he once said, uh, who, who would you rather go to war with? He said, my allies. <laughs> right. Here's another, just a quick headline from this uh, Onion collection. 600,000 killed in four-inch advance on Western Front. There you go. And that sounds like it's a joke, but those numbers actually do hold up they hold up and and of Sadly. course it was the it was this uh stalemated trench warfare that finally brought some senses to the to some of these leaders it was exhaustion to, to be quite frank with you and you know the, the number of troops uh, lost in world war one are were, were probably around 10 million and it's important to remember that the united states lost about 120,000 <laughs> Whereas French, I think, I think France lost about four million. So the, the, these were staggering numbers uh, heretofore unseen. Uh, it's there. Of course, there was a, a pandemic flu in 1918 that killed uh, quite a lot of people. So some experts point out that about 30 million people died as a result of World War One. But as uh, A.J.P. Taylor notes in his book, there wasn't widespread famine the way there was in World War II, in which literally t 
tens of millions of people literally died of starvation and diseases, civilians that were caught up in the in the fighting between, uh, particularly in China and uh, parts of Eastern Europe, particularly well, the, the Ukraine. And in the Netherlands, there was a lot of uh, starvation uh, under German occupation. A lot of the food was being brought to Germany. And of course, uh, prisoners of war. Um, <laughs> Were, were not treated well. If, if you got caught by the Russians, uh, you were not terribly likely to survive. Well, the they didn't have they didn't have enough supplies for their own troops. Exactly. Uh, the Geneva Conventions are one of the other things to emerge from World War One. Um, yeah, and it's interesting too that that in Taylor's book he points out that pacifism as a uh, kind of an intellectual concept emerged from World War One. It was the first time really in human civilizations in, in which people began to question war itself. Uh, there were uh, certainly, in, for instance, in the American Civil War, it's very well established that uh, there were a lot of so-called draft dodgers in cities like New York City where people would pay other people to show up for them. Uh, there were draft riots in New York City during the Civil War. Uh, these are things that uh, we don't learn too much about in high school, but when you begin reading more sophisticated books, you learn of these events. But the pacifism of World War I uh, was an intellectual movement. It was, uh, you know, there were many left-wing thinkers that questioned the war and what was really going on. Of course, the Marxist perspective was that it was a imperialistic war to make money, and indeed, the United States did make quite a bit of money from World War I because we were officially neutral for a couple of years, uh, though clearly uh, at a certain point we began to favor the Allied side, both in terms of rhetoric and uh, actual trading. We talked a little bit about that last week, how German trade uh, had collapsed from $345 million in 1914 to two million dollars in 1917 uh, we didn't embargo germany but the net effect was the trade had pretty much gone to zero yeah. and of course in the united states we are familiar with all of the cultural um changes that were made with respect to the hun hamburger was banned frankfurter <laughs> <laughs> right, became hot dog. You know, uh, just like your freedom fries. Your freedom fries from the sauerkraut became liberty cabbage. Yeah, which is strange because uh, Germans were one of the largest immigrant groups into this country. Sure. Um, another component of the uh, the pacifistic uh, uh, developments uh, of World War One. A lot of the uh, pacifists in America were immigrants, people who'd come from Europe sure. and knew, oh, God, another European conflagration. They I came here to get away from that. To get away from that, and that was part of the reason there was this uh, anti-immigrant suspicion uh, sort of levied against society by the authorities. Mm -hmm. They were skeptical of the loyalties of Americans they questioned whether, you know, once America got into the war in 1917, they questioned uh, the loyalty of the German-American, um, the Italian-American, yep. 
the you know, there, I, I don't think there were as many French Americans, but there were certainly many Eastern European Slavs were definitely looked down on. Yeah, so it was uh, very interesting. You know, and it's fascinating. For instance, that Eugene Debs went to prison. Mm -hmm. A uh, longtime socialist presidential candidate, he went uh, to prison during World War One for uh, basically tearing up draft uh, pages, as I recall, draft uh, documents. He was sort of involved in uh, something that became popular again in the 1960s, organizing uh, a protest of the war because, as a socialist, he saw the war as a Capitalist conspiracy. Well, and a, and a waste of human enterprise, which is ultimately true. <laughs> so there was a there was certainly a humanitarian uh, component of some of the more rational people about why World War One was such folly and such a waste of time. You can argue, of course, that the British entered World War One for. Um, idealistic reasons. They were outraged by the violation of Belgium neutrality, as they say. Uh, the British media made much of the atrocities in Belgium committed by the, the Hun, quote-unquote. And uh, there were certainly uh, were many atrocities uh, committed by the Hun, but uh, there were atrocities committed by the Allies as well. Well, this is the first... Uh war uh, to feature a film as propaganda too there are a couple of very interesting world war one era films uh one in which uh, eric von stroheim uh a, an american actor of austrian descent plays the hun commander uh and he is a silent movie from uh you know the world war one era dw griffith's hearts of uh, hearts of the world uh Stroheim as the Hun throws a baby out a window. Mm -hmm. I mean, this would be shocking in a film today, but in 1917, oh my God, people are horrified. And so uh, the uh, degree to which this is the first mass media war is something that uh, is just another of the uh, fascinating aspects of, uh, of World War One. You talk about pacifism. The other side of that coin is uh, there was also in Italy uh, a movement of intellectuals and artists who called themselves the Futurists, and rather perversely, they celebrated war as the ultimate art form. They saw mechanization, uh, you know, that men would become more like machines, and they thought that was a good thing. These guys were, although some of their artistic ideas are interesting, politically they were sort of proto-fascists uh, who celebrated uh, the destruction of war. Um, and uh, as you might say, they deserved... Uh, uh, most of them were killed in and, World War One, and and of course fascism cropped up in Italy in in 1922, well yes. well before uh, it ever happened in Germany. And of course Mussolini's fascism was very very different from Adolf Hitler's, but uh, <laughs> he was almost a clown in in some ways. Uh, Mussolini, it's it's he's a kind of a bizarre uh, figure to read about well a, a man of many contradictions i mean yeah. he started out as a socialist and ended up as a fascist so that's not thinking it through not thinking it through and ironically when he was finally uh, caught by italian partisans in world war ii literally days before the fall of berlin he almost survived yeah his he was overthrown in 43 but he was on the run somewhere mm -hmm. hiding out uh 
He was actually uh, executed with his Jewish mistress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so once again, you know, Mussolini with all of these strange pa uh, paradoxes and contradictions. Of course, the um, the treaties that resulted from, you know, I wanted to briefly read, and, and we sometimes forget uh, Woodrow Wilson, of course, got America into the war eventually, partly for economic reasons, certainly, but uh, he generally had an idealistic perspective. In, he was uh, a history professor. History professor, and he, I, I think, had a genuinely uh, idealistic perspective about how he, as a figure of history, could um, end the war, uh, because he issued the, the 14 points uh, in January of 1918, uh, before there ever really was an armistice signed, and he had even dispatched some of his ministers uh, in 1917 to see what he could figure out on the ground in terms of negotiations. But I wanted to read a couple of the 14 points, because I think they are interesting idealistic concepts that later became some of the objectives that Franklin Roosevelt had in, uh, following the end of World War II. Uh, and actual proclamations that were uttered during World War II by Roosevelt and Winston Churchill in terms of their approach to um, exterminating the Nazi regime and its uh, cruelty and bar barbarity, to just use a couple of words. But I wanted to read a couple of the 14 points just to remind you of what they are. He says, uh, open covenants of peace openly arrived at. That's one. Two, freedom of the seas. Removal, so far as possible, quote-unquote, of trade barriers. Reduction of armaments to the lowest point consistent with domestic safety. Equitable adjustment of colonial claims. A League of Nations uh, that points to, uh, uh, to uh, cl territorial claims the evacuation of Russia, the evacuation and restoration of Belgium, the return of Alsace-Lorraine to France, uh, readjustment of Italian frontiers, quote, along clearly recognizable lines of nationality, autonomous development for peace, uh, people of Austria-Hungary, Hungary, Hungary. Uh, the evacuation of Romania, Serbia-Montenegro, with access to the sea for Serbia, a reduction of Turkish uh, territory containing only peoples of Turkish descent. Independence of Poland with access to the seas. And uh, he issued these proclamations. These were sort of his talking points going into the Treaty of Versailles uh, that, that subsequently followed in November of 1918. Uh, this was, by the way, before uh, the, the Bolsheviks had signed a separate peace treaty with um, Germany, but it's interesting how these were his goals, his his sort of vision for uh, how we can resolve some of these conflicts that were that were involved in World War One. Well, the one about equitable adjustment of territorial claims uh, regarding colonial uh, holdings uh, is particularly interesting because at one point in one of his uh, speeches, Wilson specifically mentions the Kurds. 
as being a people deserving of their own state. They've got a language. They've got a history. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous uh, Arabs in in world history is not really an Arab. He's a Kurd, Saladin. Um, that goes way back, of course, to the Crusades. But the Kurds uh, are still waiting uh, for their state. They may end up with it before uh, too much longer. Uh, in northern Iraq, of course, uh, Turkey's not going to let the eastern Kurdish regions of Turkey go uh, without a fight. But certainly the areas of, of western Syria and southern or northern Iraq are, are almost literally up for grabs as we speak. Indeed. I mean, these are, these are territories. These, these are nation states, Syria and Iraq, by the way, that were created from the remnants of World War I. By who? The British and French imperialists. Out the, of the French, Ottoman Empire. The French took Syria and Lebanon as, quote, part of the French mandate. The British were uh, quite uh, well familiar with the fact that Iraq had oil. So they gladly took uh, Transjordan and Iraq. <laughs> Which is why the Kurds did not get their state. Uh, because and, the British knew, all oh, there's holdings there. We want to keep those. We've already struck a deal with the king. And needless to say, Iraq, by the way, just for the historical record, included Kuwait, the area known as Kuwait. Kuwait was created, if you go back and you check the facts on this, as an independent state in 1962, after the king of Iraq was overthrown, I forget his name at the moment, um, overthrown in 58, I think. Farouk. Farouk. I think. I think Farouk was the... Uh, was uh, Egypt, because I think that yeah, yeah, that's right. Roosevelt, you know, it's interesting that people have often critique Yalta and what Roosevelt, quote-unquote, gave away to the Russians. Roosevelt actually left Yalta early. He went to meet Bin Saud, Haile Selassie, and King Farouk oh, that's right. on a boat. And yes. it was the first time that the king of Saudi Arabia had actually been off Saudi soil. Mm -hmm. Uh, the king apparently was enamored with the fact that Roosevelt had these wheelchairs. And Roosevelt gave him one of his wheelchairs. <laughs> so they actually powwowed in wheelchairs. He was apparently a little elderly and fascinated by the contraption known as the wheelchair. Well, these were deals that Roosevelt made following World War II regarding American access to oil in the Middle East. Still with us today. We've seen recently with Barack Obama, the so-called Carter Doctrine, and these issues regarding, quote-unquote, American national security. Mm -hmm. Well, that's always a vague term, but we know when it comes to the Middle East, we know involving these conflagrations that are going on in Iraq, that while there will be no boots on the ground, uh, I don't think Obama is uh, going to uh, renege on that uh, promise. But America's national interest, quote-unquote, includes the fact that oil um, uh, reserves and uh, uh, resources in the Middle East are crucial to the global economy. And America will do what's necessary, so to speak, uh, if they think those supplies are threatened. That's usually involved calling up the monarch of Saudi Arabia and requesting that they turn up the taps a bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Crank out a few more thousand barrels a day, thanks. We need you to up production right now. <laughs> Don't go slow. Uh, we, we, we need extra molasses on our pancakes this, this week. <laughs> 
and course, molasses is exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> of course, another interesting sort of historical similarity mm -hmm. here is that both Wilson and uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, began to suffer very poor health just when their work was reaching really its most crucial point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Wilson has a stroke sort of incapacitating him. Had the stroke while while going on a public speaking tour yes. to promote the uh, the Treaty of Versailles. Yep, and so there was never really the proper American support. Had uh, you know a fully able president been able to argue that history might have been different. Uh, Roosevelt, of course, dies before the war is finished, uh, and it falls to Truman uh, to uh, complete the uh, the war. Truman, not the most sophisticated of presidents, uh, sort of a, a handler, uh, but not really a thinker. Um, who who served in World War One, by the way? He was a. I I, I don't want to just say he was a private, but I I don't think he 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 was a small he was a small fry in World War One. I. I think he might have got up to corporal. Okay. I think Franklin Roosevelt was an undersecretary. He was of the, the Navy. assistant secretary of Navy under. Uh, um, um, Joseph, uh, what's his name? Well, Dan, I, I want to say Joseph Daniels, but uh, the Roosevelt, um, his, uh, because he was kind of <laughs> related to Theodore Roosevelt, uh, definitely subscribed to that Theodore Roosevelt Mayhan theory of the Navy. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he served as a, a assistant to the Secretary of Navy during World War One, so he actually had some tangible uh, war experience uh, when he became president. And of course, he appeared on the uh, <laughs> on the ballot uh, as as a vice presidential candidate before he ultimately became president. One of those thumpings that uh, the Democrats took. Oh, that's right. Yeah. In 1924, I think that was the famous convention where it took 103 ballots. Good Lord. Talk about a smoke-filled smoke -filled room. Uh, it took forever. But, um, yeah, the, um, the, 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 the interesting cultural changes that resulted from World War I, too, the, the avant-garde jazz movement and Weimar Republic and the development of film in the 1920s, uh, 